I chose a massive text for me, a large passage, and um, and I knew when we when we walk through that particular passage, there's just too much there for one sermon, and depending on my purposes, I could have just hit some highlights and then kept going, um, but but. The, the, there's so much there. I really didn't. I I, I didn't want to just keep going. I, I want to go back and look at some other things. I'll take a portion of what we looked at last week. So so 26 to 41. 26 to 41. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God, brothers, sons of Abraham's family, those among you who fear God. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross, they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. We preached you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled the promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was laid among his fathers, he underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is freed from all the things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, what a great and a glorious and a loving and a kind and a patient God. You don't treat us, Heavenly Father, as our sins deserve. You laid that upon the back of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You treated him, Heavenly Father, as we deserve. We deserved death. Every one of us, like a sheep, has gone astray from you and lived in sin according to their own desires. And your holy law demands that the soul that sins dies. We would never hear, well done. We would never hear, come, if you treated us according to strict justice. You treated your son according to strict justice, and you gave us grace and mercy. May we love you evermore for this and live our lives for you, Jesus Christ. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Last week, I, I, I kind of forget where we, we started off. I, 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 want to say, I want to say we picked up at verse 13. And then I took the entire passage to 41, and we looked at, I think we did, for two weeks, we looked at the evangelistic, and I know I'm hyphenating all over the place, we looked at the evangelistic missionary endeavors 
of a number of Christ's servants. Barnabas, the Apostle Paul, John Mark, um, and other servants of the Lord Jesus Christ doing the work of evangelism. And you remember, evangelism, if, if you go to a funeral, I've said this many times before, you have a eulogy. And that first prefix, you, that eulogy part, logos is words, but the you part means good. And so evangelism, that same root word, it means good. And so when we talk about doing evangelism, it's good news, bringing the good news. And our passage says it a number of times, this message of salvation. The fundamental truth of orthodox biblical Christianity is that God has made a way to save sinners from their sins, to save sinners from the wrath of God. And he has made the way in his son, Christ Jesus, is salvation. Are there other things in Scripture? There's certainly other things in Scripture. But the main thing is how we might be made right before a holy God. And that is being found in the Holy Son, Christ Jesus. It's salvation. So if you go to a church where the fundamental focus is not being transferred from the kingdom of death and darkness into the kingdom of light and life in Christ, of being saved from the wrath, being saved to love God with a childlike love, you're in the wrong church. If they focus on other things, we're taking over America, how to have good health, how to have good wealth, I'm, I'm not picking on those things. I want everybody here to be healthy. I want everybody here to have a flush bank account. I would love to make America great again. America is going to be made great again. The book of Revelation, I forget what it is, chapter 11. And the kingdoms of men will become the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someday there's going to be one kingdom. And then everything will be great. That's this. That's salvation. And I know sometimes Christians, they make the minor things the major things. We want to make the major things the major things. The major thing is the major one. The major subject is our salvation in Christ. And so the evangelists, the good news people, they're gospeling. They're giving out this wonderful good news. And beloved, our, our, our brother, I think, prayed it. Maybe it's Sunday school. Maybe, I can't remember. Who does it, he said, who doesn't need to be encouraged? All day long, you're only going to meet two kind of people. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to be encouraged. And we have the words of eternal life. It's not you sh- if your blood, I brought my, my cholesterol down 40 points by, uh, by eating krill oil. I'm not telling everybody to eat krill oil, but I brought, ate krill oil and I got my cholesterol under 200, first time in my, my adult life, by eating krill oil. The message is not how to be healthy. The message is God has sent his son to reconcile us, that we would be saved from the wrath of God, saved to love God and to live forever with God. And we, only believers, have that message. So, beloved, you have the good news. And so we see the work of the servant. So we kind of focused in on the work of Christ's servants. We looked a little bit at Christ's servants, being believers, certainly, and then preachers and evangelists and missionaries, all those kind of things. But what I want to do from today's sermon is I want to back up And not so much focus in on the servant. I want to look at the Christ that the servant preaches. And that's what we're going to consider. And originally, I send out my church bulletin like on a Monday or Tuesday. And so I look at the passage and I think where where I'm going to go. And by the end of the week, I'm kind of, I've gone, I've gone way. So my, my sermon usually is not what I tell you it's going to be on Monday. 
So on Monday or Tuesday, I thought, looking at this passage, okay, we have, um, we have the humiliation of Jesus Christ, his suffering, his affliction, his death, his burial, all those things, the humiliation of Jesus. And then if you look at this passage with your bird's eye view and you get your highlighter out, the Bible says directly and indirectly, resurrection from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead probably three, four, five, six times. And that's Christ's state of exaltation. So I was originally thinking as I looked at this, okay, in, in, in theology, what I just mentioned, humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, which is what this passage teaches us, they often call this the estates of Christ, the estates of Jesus Christ. And what they're referencing is the estates of Jesus Christ as a mediator, the estates of Jesus Christ subsequent his incarnation. They don't mean prior to his incarnation, his estate then. If you read, uh, what am I thinking? High priestly prayer, John 17, 1 through, well, all of John 17, but certainly 1 through 17, but all of John 17 is the high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, Father, glorify me as I glorified you with the, with the glory I had before I, I came. Well, Christ has forever and ever and ever, ever been John 1, 1, John 1, 1 through 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word, go ahead, finish it. Amen. Amen. It affirms monotheism. It affirms Trinitarian monotheism. Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Godhead. The Bible says it. How does that exactly work? Who knows? When we get to heaven, we're going to know way more than we know now. But the Bible does say it. So, Jesus Christ, before he came through the womb of the Virgin Mary, she conceived him being, con- being conceived by the, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. He was born of her yet without any sin. He's, he is, that was his incarnation. Prior to his incarnation, he, he is eternal, uncreated God. Mystery of mysteries. So when we're looking at his state of humiliation, and then when we speak of his exaltation, we mean in reference to his entering into this life And again, this is a basic sermon. We're looking at the Christ that these men preached, and they're preaching the basics. They're preaching, well, the Bible promises to send Jesus to save us because the law of Moses could not save you. And then the Bible will tell us that Jesus Christ lived a life of cross-carrying. He lived a life of affliction, of abuse from the devil and the devil's servants, both angelic and human. He died and he was buried. His estate as our mediator in humiliation. But the Bible gives us confidence that Christ's life did not terminate ultimately in death. That after he was buried for three days, he did what? In fulfillment of the scriptures. What did Jesus Christ do? He rose from the dead. Exaltation. Christ's humiliation, we're gonna, that's what we're going to look at today. I thought I could cover both, but there's so much for the humiliation of Jesus Christ, that I, I want to take the whole sermon. But I, I will say, Christ is no longer in an estate of humiliation. I used, to be a diff- I used to be a different kind of Christian. When I became a born-again Christian at 26, I know that's redundant. I was raised in a form of Christianity that didn't have a real gospel. Then I became a born-again Christian at 26, and I've been everywhere. And I used to be a different kind of Christian regarding the, 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 the exaltation of Jesus. I thought Jesus was going to come back from, he was going to leave the right hand of glory. He was going to come back and sit in a stone temple in renovated Palestine 
and reinstitute animal sacrifices. Um, I no longer believe that. Would it be would it be an indication if we told Jesus to leave glory where he is right now and sit in a stone temple in Palestine and re-sacrifice animals, would that be humiliating for Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. Jesus will never be humiliated again. That's over. And so he came the first time, meek and mild, and he came to offer himself as a sacrifice, which is what we're going to consider. He's not coming that way the next time. When Jesus Christ comes back, we are going to see him in all his glory and splendor. He is exalted. So Christ doesn't lose. Christ wins. We do not lose. We win. But winning as a Christian, a real Bible-believing Christian, looks markedly different than the world. When I say win, what, what does the world, how does the world define or describe winning? We're winning. You're healthy, you're wealthy, you're going to kill everybody with the sword. You're going to, that, that's nonsense. Jesus wins on the cross. It's antithetical to the mind of man. And so Christians come along, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be political. And think, we're going to win by taking over politics. We're going to win by taking over the academy. Oi, vey. Oi, veyestmir. That is not winning. That is not winning. When they say, Brother John is gone, Sister Sally is gone, you have won. <laughs> you have won. We're all going to be sown with what? With groaning and weakness. You win. With groaning and weakness. The world says, groaning and weakness, you don't win. Oh, yes, you do. Jesus says, he says, if you believe in me, even if you die, you'll live. We win. So you see what I'm saying. So these men are preaching Christ. He has two estates as our mediator savior. The first one is humiliation. The second one is exaltation. The first one is cross-carrying and cross-going. And the second estate is crown-wearing. And I'm probably going to weave it through the whole sermon. Jesus says in John chapter 15, if they treated me this way as the master, how are they going to treat you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? The same way. If they hated our master, why do we think, and we do think this, we think, well, I'm a nice person, well, well, I'm a nice person, I don't smell anymore, I can put a suit on and have a short hair, and so why don't people like me and treat me nicely? And we, we think that as Christians. Did the world think our Jesus was nice, and did the world treat our Jesus nicely? No, they hated him. They said he was a tool of the devil. He was a drunkard. He was a wine-bibber. So why do we think that we're supposed to, well, holy reverend, righteous, holy reverend. You know, that's, that's nonsense. They didn't treat our Lord that way. That means they're not going to treat us this way. And so when we look at the humiliation of Jesus, it's for us. But that same scheme is the same scheme for us. Humiliation, exaltation. Suffering, affliction, cross-carrying and dying, and then glory, life. Same scheme. And Christians are always trying to beat that because they're not in the Word of God. We're not. We want to be Bible Christians. And so you think, well, this is going to be a bummer of a sermon. I hope it's not a bummer of a sermon. I want you to think of this. All the married guys in this room. Did you marry up or did you marry down? Okay, don't say anything. <laughs> I don't know about you. I married so far up, it's ridiculous. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus marry up or did Jesus marry down? Go ahead. He married way down. 
Read Ezekiel chapter 16. He married way down. Your father's a Hittite, your mother's a Canaanite, and you were born in your sin, and you're just a sinner. He married way down. Why? Because he loved the bride. He wanted to purchase her. He humiliated himself to buy you. Christ humiliated himself in order to buy you as his bride. And what's the response? If we were that bride, and since we are that bride, the king of glory becomes a foot washer. The king of glory, the just one, dies for the unjust ones, us. What should be our response? The Dutch have it right. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Our whole life should be a, should be a, a, a thank offering for this glorious husband that so humbled himself to purchase the right, the likes of us. That, that, that's where we're going. So we're going to look at the humiliation of Jesus um, Christ. I, I think this is necessary. You're going to say, well, Pastor, I know this. I was raised in the church. And if you were raised in the church and you were raised in a Bible-believing church, I don't think I'm going to tell you anything tricky. But you know what? The Apostle Peter says this. I forget which letter, first or second, obviously. He says, I know that my time of exodus is near. I'm getting ready to die. I know that. And and Peter says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore, it's not really grievous to me to keep reminding you of the basics of the faith. And so he says, I'm going to tell you the good old gospel again. I'm going to tell you about Jesus again because I'm getting ready to die. And it's it's not vexum to me or burdensome to me, but it's necessary to you. And so when we look here, I think looking at the Christ that's being preached, who he is, what he's come to do, his estates of humiliation and exaltation, as we see here, it's so, this is so necessary to me because in the times in which we live. I'll probably show my eschatological position. Eschatology is end times, post-mill, pre-mill. I used to be, when I was a dispensationalist, a different kind of mill. That's another story. I'm mill now, but it's really what I am is Louis Burakoff has in his systematic theology, he deals with all the mills. And I'm, oh, that's interesting. That, but he starts off the mills with personal eschatology. This is where my passion lies. You may have a different passion. My passion, studying the millennial uh, reign of Christ, deals with what Louis Burakoff describes as personal eschatology. And what does that mean? That means you and me are going to die and meet God. That's where my passion lies. You may have it all figured out exactly how Jesus comes back. and uh, I don't. But my passion is not there. My passion is know Jesus Christ right now. Love him. Serve him. However, Because millennialism, the study of millennialism, is just how it's going to shake out on the last generation anyways. Most other people are going to do it the old-fashioned way. Right? What's the old-fashioned way? We're going to live for a time as aliens and sojourners, as our brother pointed out from Hebrews chapter 11, and then what's going to happen? We're going to die. We're going to die. And I know you're going to, oh, Pastor John, you're always going to slip death in there. Uh, I am going to slip death in here today. I got, I, in God's providence, in God's providence, this week has been visits to the ICU, where a husband begging God to keep his wife alive, and children begging God to keep their mother alive, 
And then that was Monday and Friday. And then yesterday, I was at a funeral of a man that obviously God didn't answer the prayers. And so the 57-year-old wife and mother is gone. So I went from ICU to answer to prayers to a funeral where God said no. And that's the old-fashioned way. And my job as a minister is to prepare people for that great event. And the only way to prepare for that great event, the only way, I prayed for the gospel to be preached yesterday and it wasn't. I so wanted to preach, I couldn't even tell you how bad I wanted to preach. The only way to prepare for that is to know Jesus Christ really. Like no fooling. To know him, to know who he is. The biblical Jesus, not the Jesus of my youth, not the Jesus of the church I was raised in, but the real Jesus. The Jesus, to know Jesus Christ savingly. That's their message. That's their whole... The apostles lived and died to proclaim this Jesus because they, had, they, were, they were compelled to prepare people for their personal eschatology. We're going to go. We're going to go at 73. We're going to go at 57. We're going to go. And where are we going depends upon, is Christ our Savior? Do we know him? Are our sins forgiven? Are we saved from our sins? Are we God's children through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or not? So it's an intensely serious business. I I don't want to be grave. I don't want to be morose or any of those kind of things. I don't feel inordinately morose. I'm not depressed. This isn't depressing. But it it, it is sobering. Looking at all of this business It is sobering. And one of the reasons I think this message of the preaching of Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, to save us from and for the times in which we live. Our brother read an interesting article, a snippet of an article from 1948. We always think, we always think, well, if I could go back to the 1950s, it was kind of like June the beaver and she had the, 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 uh, the, the pearls and she wore a dress, and then Ward came home. He was always he was cutting the grass in a suit. Everything you remember, you know what I'm talking about. And you, you think like, oh, if I could go home and like Beaver and Ward and like Wally and Bud, and if we could do that, everybody was like a born again Christian. Everything's great, and now everything's a rat hole, and we live in Sodom and Gomorrah. But in the 50s, it was just oh man, Shazam! Everybody was a born again Christian. They were even reformed. They were even reformed. Beloved, is that true? Is that true? What's bathtub gin? You know what bathtub gin is? Well, that was, that was even, bathtub gin was before the 50s. They were making gin in their tubs, not because they were Reformed Christians, because, because there was prohibition and they wanted gin. We need to be students of history so we don't go, oh, manana, manana. It was so much better back then. We live in times, the Bible says, we are in the last days. So you think, what, what, what time in which are, are we living? The Bible says clearly we're in the last days. The Bible says it. There's no guessing. 1 John chapter 2, I think, says we're in the last day. Singular. We're it. The only thing that remains is you're going to hear a trumpet blare, and Jesus is going to send out the angels. He's going to gather in the elect from the four quarters of the earth, and then we're out of here. You say, well, is that the secret rapture? It's not going to be so secret. <laughs> it's going to begin the eternal estate, but I don't want to get sidetracked. 
The reason this is so necessary is because the, t- the times of the last days, what the Bible says, it, it uses the word apostasy. Do you know what the word apostasy means? Apostate, apostasy. It's a compound word. Uh, apo is away from, the prefix. It's a, it's a falling away from something and then a necessarily embracing of something else. Falling away from Christ, falling away from the Bible, falling away from the truth. Jesus says in the Olivet Discord, Matthew chapter 24, in the love of many will grow what? Go ahead, Phil, say it. Cold. In lawlessness will what? Increase. This is not the worldling. This is not the pagan, the Hindu, the Muslims. This is the professing Christian. That's why God says, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, judgment begins where? First, household of God. We always think, oh, those bad people playing golf on Sunday, or those bad people out there. Oh, oh no, 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 beloved. That's God, God will get to them. <laughs> judgment is, will come around to them. Judgment begins here. Oh, I'm a Christian. I have a Bible. Look, there's water on my head and a Lord's Supper in my belly. Okay, we're going to start with you. Do you believe in Christ? What do you mean? I'm baptized. Do you believe in Christ? What do you mean? I'm a, a minister. Do you believe in Christ? Starts here. We are in that time of apostasy. And you don't have to go, I don't know kind of what churches you, you were raised and you, 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 you kind of are, are privy to. You don't, you, you don't have to be very old as a Christian or do any kind of traveling and go to any kind of different church where you find out, wow, it says Christian church on the outside, but why is Reverend Sally sitting up there preaching from Transcendental Meditation books and, and Thoreau? What, why is she doing that? I'm being a little silly, right? That's the times. You can go into gobs of churches. I would argue that they're a majority. They're not going to tell you the real Jesus. They're not going to tell you the humiliation of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. They're not going to tell you at the very end of their sermon, like Paul is inspired to say, repent and believe. Oh, no, no, no. No. They're going to say everything is good, everything's great, don't worry. He, she, it, God. Right? Right. That's the times. So you're going to walk away today. Pastor, this is just plain vanilla. I I hear this all the time. Well, good. (laughs) Good. Gobs of Christians. Remember I said, personal eschatology. You want your kids at your funeral doing some mumbo-jumbo fly away, or you want real Jesus. You want real Jesus. Real Jesus. Real Jesus. So we live in times of great apostasy. And it's the cold towards the truth, cold towards holiness, cold towards Christ, and hot towards sin in the church. So this is most necessary. And I I, want to say something. The Jesus that is being presented in our passage is in the fulfillment of many Old Testament passages, if I could put it this way, there are sharp edges to the doctrine of Jesus. Do you know what I mean when I say that? There are sharp edges to the doctrine of Jesus. Maybe I should phrase it better. It's a clearly defined Jesus. It's a Jesus that comes in the flesh. It's a Jesus that lives a life of cross-bearing. It's a Jesus that that, that dies a a death of, of wrath, assuaging, it's a Jesus who was buried in a tomb. 
It's very precise in who this Jesus is. That's called doctrine. Doctrine is not a four-letter word. It just means teaching. And so I know in some churches, like, y'all going to be a doctrinal church, y'all going to be a practical church. Please don't ever say that in my, my presence. It's just so silly. I can't even take it. I won't tell you that you're being silly, but please, you're being silly. The doctrine is either true according to the word of God or not true according to the word. Everyone's doctrinal. Everyone. Sister Sally up there preaching the flowers and mumbo-jumbo. She's doctrinal. But she's not doctrinally sound according to the Bible. And so what we see here is a very doctrinally precise Christ being presented to us. Because in that time of, of great apostasy, which we are in, everyone wants to dumb down the Christian faith. And they want to water down Jesus. They want to water him down. He's just this one of many, you know, just kind of a watered down. Mamby, pamby, not a sin-bearing Christ, not a victorious risen Christ, just this nebulous watered down Jesus. My job for you all and for me all is to prepare us to meet the real Jesus. There is a real Jesus, is there not? And Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, and John says in the, in the epistles, Many false Christs are in the world. Many antichrists. Many. And so they're going to be people, oh, don't look, look at, listen to that guy. He, he, he's like in a Puritan time warp. No wonder he has like, you know, five people in a house cat. Who would ever listen to this? Oh, beloved, you test every spirit. When they, oh, Jesus is like this. He accepts everybody. Live in your sin. No problem. He doesn't really have any wrath or assuage justice or anything like that. He's just kind of a nice guy. You take that with your Bible and go, when Jesus was on the cross going, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is that because he's just a swell guy? And we're pretty, pretty good people? We need a little tweaking? Oh, no. You test every spirit. You test every Christ. I'm going to read this quote. It's very informative. This is my favorite devotional writer, who is J.C. Ryle. It is doctrine. You ready? It is doctrine, clear ringing doctrine, like the ram's horn at Jericho, cast down the opposition of the devil in sin. Listen to J.C. Rowe. No biblical doctrine, and I'm going to say no biblical doctrine on Christ, no holy fruits, no evangelical doctrine, no evangelism, no salvation. That's this. So we want the Christ of the Bible, and I want to say this, because I'm preaching to church folk, not only do we want to know Jesus according to the Bible, and I'm going to say this, and I don't want to offend anybody, and I probably do, if I offend people all the time, and I, I don't mean to. I want us to know the Jesus of the Bible, this one, and I want, to know, I want us all, everyone in this room, to know Jesus experimentally. I want you to know Jesus Christ experimentally, really. I don't want to just give you the, you know, teachers like prep you to take the test, I could prep you to take the test. I, I, I for, for sure could do it. And I could give you flashcards, and you could go through the flashcards, and then you could pass the test. I want that, but I want much more than that. When we look at our first hymn, I, I just wanted to preach the hymn. Um, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that beds our sorrows cease. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks, listening to his voice. What I'm getting at is this. I want every person in this church or the people that God sends to me in my life 
whether I'm in the church or out of the church, I want you to know Jesus Christ personally. I don't want you to just say this, because I hear this all the time. It scares the pants off me. Christianity, OPC, Presbyterianism, the Reformed faith, good, 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 good. I want to hear more than a church ammoni. I want to hear a testimony. I know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. If it was a different kind of church, I'd ask for a show of hands. I could have passed the Jesus exam in the Catholic Church. I could have beat most Protestants. I did not know him personally. I was in the church, but I wasn't in Christ. That's what I want. When, when Paul comes preaching Jesus, he doesn't want just people to go, okay, I can pass the Jesus exam from the Bible. Oh, no. If you know what it was like to not be born again, and you know what it's like to be born again, it's day and night. It, am I wrong with that? Am I right or am I wrong? I am right. I am right. I want you to know Jesus Christ. I want... When you get the call, when you get the call about your wife, about your son, about your mother, when you get the call about you, I want you to know him. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.